Well, if you see in your bulletin there, we continue our series in the last book of the Bible, uh, specifically Revelation chapters 2 and 3 specifically. And we are in Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And uh, this here is the second to last sermon in our series through these two chapters. As we see really Christ's letters to the seven churches, and the seven churches, of course, represent all Christians throughout space and time, but he's writing the seven churches in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey. And as this is the second-to-last sermon in our series, this is also the second-to-last sermon of mine here as senior pastor at First Baptist Church, and it is a privilege to open God's Word. And anyways, in Revelation in the mid-90s A.D., the Christians were going through heightened suffering and persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. And in chapter 1, Jesus brings John, he gives John a vision of the things that are to come regarding the end times and specifically judgment for those who stand against Christ and then final salvation for those who stand with him. Right? So everything that is going to come, he, lets, he, he wants to encourage these particular churches to look at. And he addresses those seven churches in their particular situations. And then in the rest of the book of Revelation, which you know, I wish we had time to look at, he talks with them more specifically about his return. Once again, these churches represent all churches everywhere, all Christians throughout space and time, and certainly us today. This is the word of God, after all, for us, which we are to receive and learn from, to be convicted by, and then also to be encouraged by. And today we see from our passage that there is, main point, main idea here, great reward for those who persist in Christ no matter the cost. Great reward for those who persist in Christ, no matter the cost. Look there at Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 to 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, this is not Philly in America, this is Philadelphia, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is about to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have, so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write my name on, I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The opening of this letter is similar to the opening of all the other letters that we've seen. It's addressed to the, the angel, right? Jesus is telling John to write to the angel of such and such church, in this case Philadelphia. Here this angel could be, once again, a metaphor for, uh, let's say, some sort of spiritual um, or it could be, sorry, a metaphor for a leader of that particular church, like an actual human leader. It could also be a spiritual counterpart 
Uh, maybe some sort of angel that is overseeing the well-being there. I'm not entirely sure. And this city, like the others, is once again found in modern-day Turkey, which at the time was in the Roman Empire. And there in verse 8, you see there, Jesus praises the church. He praises them for what? Go ahead and look there as you guys want to study your own Bible. You want to look at the text. Jesus praises them for their deeds of faith, for their works. Namely, for their perseverance in Christ despite the costs. And this brings us to point number one. The church's perseverance in Christ despite the costs. So we're going to look at their perseverance here and then be encouraged in our own present day situation. Their situation was very similar to the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. Where the Christians seem to be facing a good amount of distress, not just from the pagan culture around, but also from the Jews in the local synagogues as well. This is not surprising. The Jews killed Jesus as they rejected him as God's chosen one. And then they went on to uh, kill many who preached Christ and the good news. And we looked at this as we went through a section of the book of Acts here. Right? So Jesus came preaching that though all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, all have sinned against God and all have earned just judgment. You can think back to Adam and Eve as they were created by God to be in a perfect, loving relationship with Him, but then they rebelled. And since Adam and Eve, all people are born into sin and all choose to sin. Nevertheless, God in His great love, in His grace, offers forgiveness in Christ. The God-man who stands in the place of sinners who repent of their sins and believe. And so as he lives the righteous life and dies on the cross, those who repent of the sins and believe can have his righteousness credited to them. They can be counted righteous. They can be forgiven of their sin if they repent and believe on Christ the Lord and Savior. Of course, that's, that's what Jesus preaches when he comes. And this, of course, leads up to his death on the cross where he bore the wrath that his people deserved. And then also on the third day, he is raised from the, day, raised from the dead, showing that payment was complete. And now anybody who believes on him and everybody who believes on him doesn't have to face judgment. But instead, they know God as loving father. They're adopted into his family. They're forgiven of his sin, reconciled to their very maker. And all of that can be had. This is what we preach, right? This is the good news of Jesus, which... Here he's talking about the, the Jews who were in the synagogue who rejected Jesus. Right? They're called the synagogue of Satan. They opposed those things. They opposed the gospel. But then, of course, just as all the apostles did and just as we today do, we preach this gospel. And so everything that we just held out to you, the good news, is for you if you have not yet turned from your sin and repent. So Jesus calls everybody everywhere to turn from their sins and they will be saved. Praise God. But to many of the Jews in this time of Jesus, the gospel was too humiliating. This Jesus stuff. We'd rather just save ourselves. And this Jesus character, he's too lowly of a savior. He's too weak. He's too humble. He rides on a donkey instead of the king's horse. His throne, so to speak, is a cross and not a golden chair or something like that. We want a savior in our own image. And so they killed them. Of course, again, they go on to kill other Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah. But can you guys believe that? You think back to Old Testament history here. The Old Testament people of God, Israel, God had chosen to give them the revelation, his word in the prophecies. They had the prophets who were ministering to them. 
And here the word spoke of God's chosen one, that is the Messiah who would suffer for sins on their behalf, but yet they rejected him, the Christ. They claimed in their pride to be the people of God, but in reality they were the ones who rejected God. This is why, again, they're called the synagogue or the gathering place of Satan. In their killing of Christ and Christ's disciples, they sided with Satan himself. Just it's very similar, again, to the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2. But even if things did not get to the point of death, which we know that they did, if you think back to the other letters here, Christians were being killed in that time. But even if it didn't get to that point of death, there were still other ways to make these Jewish Christians' lives difficult. So if you were a Jew who believed in Jesus, you repented of your sins and believed on Jesus, the Jewish synagogues would actually excommunicate you. They would exclude you from them. This was a big deal culturally for those Jewish Christians. Maybe you guys can understand this, right? These people, this is the culture that they had known for thousands of years. And so to get excommunicated from the synagogue, right, that was a big deal. And more importantly, can you imagine how this would have been spiritually and emotionally? Is Jesus the chosen one? Maybe I did get it wrong. What is this gospel stuff? Maybe I am reading the Old Testament wrong. And is Jesus, is following Jesus worth the cost? Right? Not only was, was the Roman culture persecuting them, not acknowledging them and even killing them, uh, but then some of the Jews were too as they sided with Rome and on and on. Following Christ costs so much. Can't turn to the pagan culture. Can't turn to the local synagogue, of course. All they had was each other, their little band of Christians. And they had, as verse 8 said, go ahead and look there, they had but little power. There's probably a reference to how small they were possibly also how little financial security they had definitely how little authority they could wield to ensure their own safety and their security right they had none had but little is basically none and so they struggled with belonging can you imagine that struggling with belonging struggling to feel at home and we know economically too they struggled there so they're struggling to pay the bills I know that some of you guys have felt this way and are feeling this way as Christians. And even if you are not, you will probably at some point in time, if you're faithful to Jesus, or you're going to be ministering to some Christians who will eventually feel this way. So, you know, I pray that you continue to pay attention here. But I know that some of you feel that you are not at home with the culture around you. And frankly, that's a good thing. And you know, too, that stability and belonging can't even really be had with your own parents who raised you. The extended family that you grew up with because, you know, they worship different gods, so-called gods. Maybe they even make it clear in a way that makes you feel like you are on the outs. The black sheep of the family. This was very common with me and my friends growing up. Uh, I I had a friend who was from whose parents were from Thailand, and her parents said, if you become a Christian, we will disown you. I had an Iranian friend whose parents came from a Zoroastrian background. They too said, if you get baptized, we will disown you. I had other friends who were Catholic from Mexican background, and they said to be of this family is to be Catholic. You will not become an evangelical Christian. Maybe this happens to you. Or maybe what they worship is not necessarily another, they're not part of another religion, but they're part of this idolatry of self 
And so they say to be of this family is to worship the God of self-sufficiency. None of this Jesus saves junk. And so you know that a lot of Christians end up compromising. They want belonging with the world. And so they compromise on believing in Christ and following Him. Wanting to belong with the world. Can you imagine here? I mean, this kind of happens with all of us as we struggle with all sorts of sins. Not just the sin of you know, seeking identity in some place that Jesus doesn't want us to seek our identity in. But if we want to belong to the world, can you guys imagine in the middle of that temptation... It's like seeing the greatest parade the world ever had and could ever throw that celebrates the things of the world, those things that pull on your heart there. Whether it is a pagan idol parade, and you can imagine, let's say, the floats are, you know, that head up this parade are idols fashioned in the image of idols, or maybe what heads up the parade of the flo- is the float of the world's most luxurious goods of materialism. Maybe it's a symbol for riches or fame, superstardom or pleasure, whatever pleases the self. Or maybe what you want, Christian, is simply belonging with your family. And so what heads up this parade is simply your own family members who just mean so much to you. If you see how the Christian might look over in terms of you see the world's parade and then you look over at the procession of Christ and all who follow in his footsteps... There's nothing special about Jesus. He didn't have any form that people would follow him, which is what Isaiah talks about. He didn't come from a special family. In fact, he came from a a town where nothing good supposedly came from. And you see him once again, not on a horse, but on his donkey. And this is he who lives a life of suffering and ends up in self-sacrifice. And you can see, right, how that actually doesn't seem to be so attractive, at least when you're struggling And so you throw in your lot, seeking belonging with the world. Of course, walking with the world compromises one's walk with Jesus. But these Christians, these Christians, they picked up their cross and they followed in the footsteps of Jesus. Despite having this persecution thrown at them. Despite having little prospect to advance in society, despite being kicked out of their social circles that their ancestors had known for thousands of years, what did they do? Look there in verse 8. Go ahead and look there. Though you are of little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. To the servant of Christ that loves Jesus. These are words, these are encouraging words from the Lord that they love. This is Jesus telling them, yes, you have not denied my name and you have kept my word. Well done, good and faithful servant. This is their loving Savior. Now, now look, to those who are happy following in the world, the parade of the world, hearing the praises of the world, that's what they love. They don't care about keeping Jesus' word. They don't care about denying Jesus' name because they don't stand for it anyways. They've thrown in their citizenship with the world. But for those who here are aiming to please Christ, this little tiny band, these words of affirmation lift the spirit because Christ, right, my Savior, it is he who has walked my path before. It is he who sees the church. It's he who knows our situation and he who loves and supplies his grace. What have they done? Jesus says first there in verse 8, they have kept my word. This here I think is talking about, uh, this definitely can be 
consider general faithfulness. But if you look there in verse 10, we see more of what this word is. They have kept his command about patient endurance. Patient endurance for his name. Think of John 17. Jesus there had warned that the world, just as it had hated Jesus, it will hate Christians as well and will persecute them. But despite knowing that such persecution would come and despite experiencing it firsthand, what did they do? They endured steadfastly. They upheld under that pressure for Christ and his namesake. And then secondly, they did not deny Christ's name. So they stood, they suffered, and they did not deny. Now, some people might have confidence and say, well, I haven't denied yet. Well, that might be because they haven't actually stood. But they stood, they suffered, they did not, they did not deny. Now, again, for some of you, you are standing for Christ in ways that come at a great cost. Or your parents or closest friends, your employers maybe, but you know, just think family. Your family gives you so much grief about being a Christian. And though you genuinely try to love them in Christ, in all the ways that Christ calls Christians to do, right? Sharing the hope that we have in Jesus with them, in honoring them where appropriate, in trying to love your parents in different ways, in creative ways, right? You don't want to disrespect your parents where appropriate, yet they just seem so hard-hearted towards you and Jesus. They may even threaten to disown you as their child, but yet you have persevered in Christ. Praise God for that perseverance. You are my example. Because frankly, I don't know what what that looks like to have my family, my blood, be against me for following Jesus. Friends, yes. Friends who felt like family, yes, but not my blood relatives. You are my example. You are this church's example. And you can teach us of what it looks like to count the cost. And friend, I hope you know that Jesus is pleased with your faithful perseverance. He says there, look, you are but of little power. I'm sure you might feel that. But yet you have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Listen also to what Jesus says to you. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 10, 32. Friend, I hope that that's an encouragement to you today who have found yourselves on the outs with those you sincerely love in Jesus. I have known, and maybe you have known some who could not bear up under the pressure in terms of their non-Christian families, and so they end up following their non-Christian parents instead of Jesus the Lord. But I, too, know friends who have persisted. Maybe you do, too. I can remember another friend, Muslim background believer, uh, who repented of his sins and believed on Jesus. His family put tremendous pressure on him in Syria, and he struggled. And yes, just as we are all fallen, he gave into temptation here and there. But in the end, he persevered despite his family disowning him and never speaking to him again. And he patiently endured and did not deny his Savior And even where we might struggle, you realize that we walk in the same faithful footsteps of Peter, who also struggled with temptation. He struggled and sinned, but yet the track record of his whole entire life is one of perseverance until the end. Christian, if you are persevering, be reminded that the Spirit of Christ is working in you to preserve you in these moments. And that is all by his grace, and I pray that you are encouraged. In terms of application for the entire church, church, if you know a member in the congregation 
who has lived this or is living this, this kind of exclusion from their family because of Jesus, let me encourage you to ask that person if he or she can share their experiences with you to teach you. Maybe grab three, four, five more people to learn from this brother, this sister, to learn how to persevere, to learn how to pray, to learn how to support them and the others that presumably God will have you minister to. That would be incredibly beneficial, especially as we have become, as you, Christian, have become their new families in Jesus. For all Christians here, you know, Jesus says that persecution, for generally speaking, will come. You know what can help you sustain you in your time of suffering when maybe your own family is giving you, throwing at you words of criticism, threatening to disown you and remove the family name from you? It's recognizing that there is an even greater word that we live for and an even greater name that we worship and in fact bear on our backs. Of course, this is the name of Jesus and it is his eternal word that we receive. So while we recognize that following Jesus can come at a cost, the reward in Christ is greater still for those who persevere in Christ no matter the cost. This brings us to point number two, Christ and his reward. Christ and his reward. Did you notice that in our passage, and in fact all the different letters that we've looked at, Jesus wants our eyes on him and his character. I mean, if you read through the book of Revelation, he doesn't want us, our eyes fixed on earthly security. That doesn't show up in the book of Revelation. Heavenly security, yes. When it comes to earthly security, when it comes to this present evil age, <laughs> there's no security to be had. But security is to be had by looking at Christ and his character. And naturally, right, who he is affects what we do. If I'm walking in a scary place and I'm walking with my Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion professors, I feel pretty confident. But you recognize here the same dynamic is at play. Who is this Jesus? And as you walk with him through the valleys that you experience, it's supposed to affect how you interact and how your confidence, right? Certainly not in yourself, but in who he is. From our letter today, we see four aspects of who Christ is that helps us persevere, right? So we're looking at Christ and his reward as point number two. Now, underneath that, we're going to look at four aspects of who Christ is that helps us persevere. First, Christ who is for us is the sovereign one who possesses all authority. This is hugely significant for the Christians who might have been tempted to kowtow to the state or to bow to their families who rejected Jesus and even worse in some circumstances who were going to persecute them, right? They, they might have been tempted to deny the name of Jesus as they were excluded in their synagogues and their social circus, uh, circles. But even they, the state, the synagogues, they don't possess authority. I mean, just think about the very nature of who they are. They do not possess full authority. Who does possess full authority? It is Jesus. Look there at verses 7 and 8. It says there that he is the Holy One. Right? So you have these Jews who have the Old Testament revelation. Christians do too, but maybe they're thinking like, okay, am I wrong? Did the Jews get it right? Well, he is the Holy One. Jesus is the Holy One. A common name for Yahweh of the Old Testament here applied to Jesus. Jesus says, I am he. I am over all. I am set apart. There's none like me as it says in Isaiah chapter 40. And here it's applied to Jesus, Lord over all, Yahweh in the flesh. Not only that though, but he is the true one. Everything he says, he gets it right. 
And therefore, we can bank on him and his promises, right? What he says is true. Again, you can think of the Christians thinking, oh, yeah, that is right. That is right. We do know. Again, we'll get, to, we'll get to what it means there for Christ to be opening and shutting this door and then having the key of David. But notice that what he does, no one can undo. undo. This is his authority. This is his sovereignty. And what he does not want done, no one will ever do. That's sovereignty. That's authority here. Christ is the sovereign supreme. And it can be hard to acknowledge this, but for, for some, right, your parents are nothing but creatures, absolutely dependent creatures who are dependent upon others for survival. They're dependent ultimately on God. They're dependent creatures who came out of a human being and in fact they will return to dust. They have zero authority over the universe. But Jesus, he is the one who was and is and is to come. He is the Alpha and the Omega, as it says in Revelation. He is the creator. He is the judge. He is the king. So those of you who have loved your parents with the gospel, by pointing them to Christ, pointing them to Christ who is the sovereign one over them, friend, you're getting it right. All things were made by Christ. All things were made for Christ. You do not want to trade away giving glory to God to worship and serve the creation. And do not forget, persevering in Christ communicates something to them, doesn't it? It communicates that Christ is that important. He is that worthy of honor. And His words carry such authority that He commands your life and he therefore ought to be worshipped and obeyed. And don't forget that loving your family in Christ consistently, strategically, loving them with the love of Christ, which involves calling them to turn from their sins and believe on him and be reconciled to their maker, is the best way to love your parents. Because he is the one who possesses all authority, even over them, it is good to realize and embrace the fact that you are His, that is God's agent, to communicate this to them. So that's number one. He is all sovereign, possesses all authority. The second thing, Christ who is for us will vindicate us. Christ who is for us will vindicate us. Look there in verse 9. What does He say there? He'll make those who are in the synagogue of Satan, I will make them bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Those who thought that they were the people of God, though they rejected Christ, right? This is speaking of this eventual day when they would come to realize that they were wrong. And that in turn, they would come to see that the church, this multi-ethnic group of followers of Jesus, were and are the true people of God, beloved of God. And here, when you read this, don't think that the Christian here is to, that you are to sort of rejoice in this sort of, I told you so, petty vindictiveness. Rather, we are to rejoice and glory in the fact that Christians are, in fact, truly God's beloved regardless of what anybody else says. Remember, for their situation, this was a huge end times reversal. The Jews who rejected Jesus, who persecuted Christians, right? they will one day come to see that those they persecute are actually those whom God prizes and has foreknown and adopted and saved. Though they may be hated by the world, yet... They are, in fact, beloved of God, where we know Him as Father. What a tender description here. 
God as perfect father and we here as his children. And in the family of God, again, there is great reward. You listen to what Jesus says in Mark 10, 29 to 31. Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In terms of an application, church, you know that we and that you have been given the task to be an extension of God's love to his children as brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. I mean, can you imagine perhaps some, perhaps those who are disowned by their blood family, you know, and that dislocation that they feel, but yet they can be received into the family of Christ where Christ is head. Have you thought about that, Christian? I mean, if you look around at your members, do you know what's going on in your members' families' lives? What the dynamic is between parents, extended family, friends? And then do you know and have you thought about how you can actually be meeting their need by being their spiritual brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers. And this, this applies not just to those who are, who are disowned for the faith. This applies to those who have no real mothers or fathers. Those who have no brothers and sisters and who have ex- experienced familial love. Of course, the tightest familial love goes far beyond blood. As we know, there can be great hatred in families. We're talking about spiritual family and a spiritual bond in Christ and His Spirit. It's well worth thinking about how you, Christian, can specifically care for your fellow church members who might feel such love in a unique way given their earthly circumstances. I encourage you guys to think more about that. In, times, in terms of this end times reversal, the Bible is clear. Those who persecute God's people will actually come to realize that the persecuted are, in fact, God's beloved. And this recognition comes as they eventually come to recognize that they are and they bow at their feet. Revelation talks about how Christians will go on and reign with Christ. Third thing, third thing, Christ who is for us, he will keep us. Christ who is for us will keep us. Look there in verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So though you might suffer now, we enter without a doubt into final salvation later. Did you notice there that Jesus says, because you have done this, I will therefore do this other thing. Right? That's a promise. Now don't think of this as like some sort of dry transactional promise. Think of this as Jesus fulfilling all of his words to his people as he rewards the faithful. As I have done what I said, or as you have done what I said, you can bank on the fact that I will do as I have said. As you have persevered in me, I will preserve you from the trial that is coming on the whole world. Now some might take this to mean that we, that Christians are somehow taken out or removed out of the world and the judgment that will come on the rebellious world. I mean, notice there that this trial comes across those who dwell in the world, which in Revelation speaks about unbelievers or the rebellious people. Um, and so maybe one can argue that this says, this means that they are spared from suffering in general. But I think it makes more sense that that this means that Christians would be preserved through the trial. 
where we are preserved in such a way where we will not be finally overtaken by sin and Satan. And this is exactly what happens with the disciples. This is what happens with Jesus. Though they suffered in the end, God preserved them until death and through death so that they saw Christ face to face. Think of John 17, verse 15, where Jesus prays for the future church and the present church. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, right? That's not what he's praying for. I don't ask that you take them out of the world. That is not his will, at least there. But what is it? But that you keep them from the evil one. So as I understand this passage here, these Christians are kept from not all suffering, certainly not, but from the grips of Satan, such that by God's power they are kept for final salvation. This is the great reward. We may never be, we may be disregarded by the world, right? We may be disregarded by the world, disregarded by the state, disregarded by your family and friends, but never from your Savior. And not even sin and death that ravage the world will have final say, but Christ will keep you safe in his kingdom. This brings us to the language of this key of David, key of David, and the fourth thing that we see about Jesus. Christ, who is for us, has granted us permanent entry, permanent entry into the kingdom. Look there at verses 11 and 12. This is so fitting for these sojourners here having no real home under Rome and certainly no home in the synagogue, but yet they have a permanent home in the kingdom of Christ. As the true king over God's people and God's kingdom here, Jesus is the one who holds the key of David. David, the Old Testament king, who foreshadowed and pointed to Jesus, the fulfillment. The Jews in the synagogue, right, they might think that they have the keys to the kingdom as they excommunicate, as they exclude Christians, saying salvation in God is not for you. But you realize that they're judgments and their declarations their threatenings and their actions reflect nothing of the reality of who the true beloved of god are who the truly favored ones are but it is to the church that he gives the keys of the kingdom according to matthew it is it is before this small and beleaguered group of christians that christ has placed and fixed an open door so try as man may to close it or insists that it's only open to some people and not others, but according to Jesus, the open door is for those who follow him as Lord. So Christian, again, you may be disregarded by your earthly family, but according to verse 12, Jesus will make you a pillar in the spiritual temple of God. You realize, Christian, that if you're suffering in this particular way, you're feeling on the outs, you're feeling disregarded by your, maybe, by your own family, by your own friends, you're suffering in this unique way for the name of Jesus, you are in league with the apostles who were described as pillars of the church. You may be disowned one day by your parents in the world, but remember, friend, you bear the name of Jesus. Look what it says, verse 12, the one who conquers... I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of God, my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own name. So they have this threefold inscription that they bear at this end times. In this great reversal, the name, the very name that the world rejects, the very name that maybe your parents want you to reject and that they reject, you realize that you and all of God's people will receive in full in all of its glory, in all of its revelation, 
you bear the name of God. That's belonging. The name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. That's citizenship. And the name of Christ, the slain lamb who saves. You receive that name in full. And with it you are secured for eternal life. Well, for them and for us, though we may one day be called on to be on the outs with the world, maybe even our own families, we have to see that with Jesus we are taken in, we are protected, we are established. And with Christ, again, there is great reward. We are protected by the Sovereign One. We are vindicated by the champion, Jesus. We are kept for final salvation, preserved by Christ who is strong and omnipotent and we are granted permanent entry into Christ the King's kingdom with such great promises before us Christ tells us as his church and all of his people there in verse 11 look there I am coming soon hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown let's pray together Our Father in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, we give you great praise. We praise you as you are the sovereign one, as you displayed so clearly your sovereignty in creation, in rulership, on the cross, as you defeated sin, death, and Satan, and even now as you keep us till the end. We praise you, Lord, that none of your promises fall to the ground as if they were given in vain. But everything you speak, you fulfill. And so we know that we will be vindicated just as you will vindicate your own name, so you will vindicate your people who bear your name. We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you are the one who preserves us in all of your omnipotence. You see us as your sheep, and you know us, you care for us, Certainly, Lord, just as you have died for us, you will keep us until the end. And we thank you, Lord, that in your kindness and in your grace, though we have done nothing to deserve your grace and salvation, you grant us permanent entry into your kingdom simply because you have loved us. Lord, we pray that these promises and your character would be on the forefront of our minds so that even if we are called to be on the outs, we pray, God, that these things would be on our minds so that we would persevere with great faithfulness. Help us to hold fast so that no one would receive what you yourself have given to us and entrusted to us. Lord, we pray for those of us who are suffering in our effort to love others in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would make your comfort known to us in a unique way. That you would truly show us that you are the only Father in heaven. We pray, Lord, that we would be reminded of the fact that we cannot bank on anything here on earth except you and your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.